Thank you for downloading this podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Welcome back to Mackey's Revised History of Freemasonry, Chapter 60, The Traveling Freemasons of Lombardy or the Masters of Como. In the effort to trace the gradual growth of the modern system of speculative Freemasonry out of the ancient organization of the operatives, our attention is arrested by an important era. We refer to the time when, as is often claimed, the guilds of architects and builders issued about the 10th century from the north of Italy and under the name of traveling Freemasons, went over Europe, and with the favor of the churches, extended the principles of their art into every country from Germany to Scotland. One point in particular must be considered before we can properly appreciate the events connected with the origin of this body of organized Freemasons as the trustworthy link which connects the artificers or craftsmen of the Roman colleges with the Masonic guilds which sprang up in Gaul, in Germany, and in Britain. We shall therefore take a brief view of the condition of the Roman Empire in respect to the cultivation of the arts at the time of the decline of that nation, and after the seat of government had removed from Rome to Byzantium. Thomas Hope has devoted some thirty pages of his historical essay on architecture to an investigation of the circumstances which, toward the end of the 10th century, affected architecture, generally and extensively throughout Europe. To this admirable inquiry, we are indebted for many of the details and ideas to be found in the present chapter. Hope remarks that the architecture of Christian Greece and Rome, that is to say, the Byzantine and the Roman styles, exhibited, while it was confirmed within the limits bounded by the Alps, more local varieties than after it had crossed the mountain ranges and advanced successively through France and Germany to the farthest inhabited regions of northern Europe. But this advancement from the plains of Italy into more northern regions was accompanied by a style of architecture that the adoption of which was at once the cause and the effect of that united action which distinguished the Freemasons of the Middle Ages. Therefore, it will be necessary to give a brief glance at the condition of architecture in the times which preceded the going forth of such artists from Italy. We must remember that it is impossible to trace with any prospect of certainty the progress of events which finally led to the institution of speculative Freemasonry, unless we direct our attention to the early history of operative Freemasonry. Speculative and operative Freemasonry never were and never can be identical, a mistake into which early Masonic historians like Dr. Anderson have fallen. Yet it must always be remembered that the former came by a process of mental growth and extension out of the latter. Operative Freemasonry is the foundation, and speculative Freemasonry the structure which has been erected on it. Such is the theory advanced in the present work. This theory is to be preferred in the main to that which traces a connection of the modern society with any of the religious institutions of antiquity. The old Freemasonry of the medieval builders, which was essentially operative in its character, 
is the principal foundation on which is built the Freemasonry of the modern philosophers, which is essentially speculative in type. We cannot pretend to write a history of the building and at the same time fail to discuss the underlying support. We shall find necessary, therefore, to look into the history of architecture and at its condition before and after the 10th century. If we do not examine the subject in this way, we shall fail to understand how Freemasonry in the beginning of the 18th century was changed from an operative to a speculative system, from what was mainly the building art and trade to a philosophical system. There has been noted a striking evidence of the union of principles which began to distinguish the architects of and after the 10th century who called themselves Freemasons. We refer to the fact that in the time of Caesar, a house in Helvetia, or Switzerland, differed more from a dwelling in the northern part of Italy, though the regions were near to each other, than the church built in England or Sweden did from one erected in Sicily or Palestine, widely separated as the countries were apart. Now let it be remembered that this unity of design was introduced by the traveling Freemasons. These craftsmen received the knowledge of the great principles of the art of building from the artificers sent by the Roman colleges, in company with the legions of the Roman army, into all the conquered provinces, and who there established colonies. The traveling Freemasons gave their knowledge to the stonemasons of Germany, France, England, Scotland, and other countries which they visited in pursuit of employment and in the practice of their craft. Finally, that those stonemasons having from time to time, for purposes of their own progress in the social and financial world, admitted non-professional, that is to say, non-Masonic members into their ranks, the latter eventually overcame the former in numbers and in influence and changed the operative into a speculative institution. These points give the true theory of the origin of modern Freemasonry, as it were, in a nutshell. Remembering these facts, it will be at once seen how necessary it is that the Masonic student should be thoroughly acquainted with the history of these medieval craftsmen and with the character of the architecture which they invented, with the nature of the organization which they established, and with the method of building which they practiced. To attain a complete view of this subject, it is necessary that we should, in the first place, refer to the history of the Kingdom of Lombardy, which is admitted to have been the cradle of medieval architecture. At the close of the 5th century, the Ostrogoths, prompted and supported by the jealousy of the Byzantine Emperor, had invaded Italy under the celebrated Theodoric. Odoacer, who then ruled over the Roman Empire of the East, having been treacherously slain, Theodoric was proclaimed King of Italy by the Goths. He reigned for 33 years, during the greater part of which long period he was noted for his religious toleration, his administration of justice, and the patronage of the arts. There is an interesting comment on the period written by Magnus Aurelius Cassidorius, who was the Chancellor of Theodoric. The minister describes with glowing praise the exalted condition of architecture during the reign of that king. Kiraboski, who cites the passage in his History of the Sciences in Italy, credits this flourishing state of the art to the influence of the Goths. But Muller, in his Memorials of German Gothic Architecture, dissents from this view especially as the Gothic control in Italy lasted scarcely more than half a century. He contends that were it even capable of proof that architecture had been at that time such as Cassidorius describes it, the fact is to be ascribed rather to the Byzantine Romans, among whom Muller thinks that we must search for all that, at that era, was preserved of that city and the sciences. 
The Goths were finally driven out of Italy in the reign of Justinian and by the armies of the famous Belisarius. This event occurred about the middle of the 6th century. They were succeeded by another tribe of semi-barbarians who, though they did not, as the Ostrogoths had done, assume the control of the whole of the Italian peninsula, yet exerted an influence on the state of medieval architecture that produced results of most interesting character. The Longobardi, a word which by a generally accepted meaning signifies the Longbeards, a title they obtained from their manner of wearing that growth upon the face, were a Scandinavian tribe who, coming down from their almost arctic home, first settled on the eastern banks of the river Elbe. Gradually they extended their movement southwardly until in the year 568 they invaded Italy and founded in its northeastern part the kingdom which to this day bears the name of Lombardy. The kingdom of Lombardy existed in a condition of prosperity for 200 years. Finally, the kingdom was wiped out toward the end of the 8th century, in 774, from the role of independent governments by the victorious arms of Charlemagne. During that period, it had been governed by one in twenty kings. Several of these displayed great talents and left monuments in the wisdom and prudence of the laws they gave to the kingdom. At the time of their first invasion under Alboin, their king, the Longobards, or, as they were more briefly called, the Lombards, who were a fierce and warlike people, were pagans and inflicted many cruelties on the Roman Christians. But their manners became gradually more mild, and in the year 587, Antheres, their third king, accepted Christianity according to the faith of the Arians, who held that the sun was a created being. His successor adopted the Orthodox creed. The germs of the interference of the church with the arts and sciences and the control of architecture were first planted in the 6th century. During the repeated inroads of barbarians, the gradual decline and then the fall of the power of the Roman Empire and the continued wars, the arts and sciences would have been totally lost had they not found a place of refuge among the priests, the bishops, and the societies of monks. Whatever there was remaining of the old culture was preserved from perishing in the monasteries, the churches, and the dwellings of the churchmen. Schools were set up in the cathedral churches, in which youths were instructed by the bishop or someone appointed by him in the knowledge of the seven liberal arts and sciences. In the monasteries, the monks and nuns devoted as a part of their training and discipline a certain portion of their time to reading the works of the ancient doctors, or in copying and circulating manuscripts of classical as well as Christian writers. To these establishments, says Mosheim, are we indebted for the preservation and possession of all the ancient authors who thus escaped the fury of barbaric ignorance. Architecture, which because its principles were generally and almost exclusively applied to the construction of churches and other religious edifices, had become almost a sacred art, was at first and for a long time under the control of the clergy. The laity or common people were either an ignorant peasantry or soldiers trained to war, the ecclesiastics, the officials of the church, alone exercised the arts, and especially that of architecture. Missionaries sent out to teach the Christian faith carried with them into the fields of their labor builders, whom they directed in the construction of the new church, which they made their converts erect. Ecclesiastical writers have remarked upon the surprising number of churches which, under the influence of religious enthusiasm, were erected all over Europe, but more especially in Gaul and Italy, at so early a period as the 6th century. Lombardy, as Hope has remarked, is the country in which associations of Freemasons were first formed, and which, from its more recent civilization, afforded few ancient temples, whence materials might be supplied, 
was the first, after the decline of the Roman Empire, to endow architecture with a complete and connected system of forms, which soon prevailed wherever the Latin church spread its influence from the shores of the Baltic to those of the Mediterranean. Muller, a learned writer on architecture, asserts that the Lombards were much in the habit of building and appear to have quickly attained a higher degree of civilization than the Goths, to whom they succeeded. As a proof of their skill in architectural culture, we may refer to Dancourt's History of Art by its Monuments, where is exhibited a plate of the Church of St. Julia near Bergamo, that of St. Michael of Pavia, and that of the Round Church of St. Momus, all of which he credits to the Lombards. Hope also lists among the churches erected in what he calls the Lombard style, the Basilica at St. Eustorgio, which was built in the 7th or 8th century. But... As in the case of the Goths, Muller claims that whatever there was there of excellence in Lombardian architecture was not due to the Lombards themselves, who were originally a rude invading people who adopted the civilized manners as well as the architecture of the people whom they conquered, but to the Byzantine Romans. Other writers on this subject do not agree with Muller in this view. We cannot deny that there was a constant influx of Grecian artists from Byzantium to Lombardy. Unquestionably, these craftsmen must have influenced the local condition of the arts by their superior skill. It cannot be doubted that at that time of extinction of their kingdom, the people of Lombardy had attained a very considerable share of civilization and had made much progress in the art of building. This is evident from the few monuments that still remain, as well as from the fact that Charlemagne made but little change in their government when he established his Lombard empire by their conquest. Nicholson speaks of these Lombards in terms of approval. He says that Italy does not seem to have suffered much, but rather the reverse from their government, and during their possession the arts flourished and were cultivated with greater success than during the periods immediately preceding or following. It is certain that they gave a great impetus to building, for during the two hundred years of their sway the northern and central portions of Italy had become studded with churches and baptistries. Therefore, we may safely say that the ancient architecture of the Romans, derived from their colleges of artificers, was imitated by the Lombards, and with its improvements brought to them from Byzantium by Grecian architects, was later on extended over Europe. But it was only after the conquest of Lombardy by Charlemagne that that province began to assume that high place in architecture, which was won for it by the labors of the builders who spread over all Europe the principles of the new style from which they had invented. This style of building, which was known as the Lombard from the place of its origin, differed from both the Roman and the Byzantine, though it is used in adapted portions of each of these models for architecture. Notwithstanding that the rule over Lombardy by Charlemagne, a king whose genius in acquiring empires was equaled by his prudence in preserving them, must have tended to advance the civilization of the inhabitants, the long succession of a race of inferior descendants had a retarding effect. Not until two centuries after his death did the architects of Lombardy establish that reputation as builders, which has so closely connected their labors with the history of Freemasonry in the Middle Ages. We have already seen, when the subject was treated in a previous part of this work, that the Roman colleges of artificers continued to exist in all their vigor until the end of the empire. The inroads of the hordes of barbarians which led to that result had lessened their numbers and weakened their organization, so long as paganism was a religion of the state. But when the people were converted to Christianity, the colleges, under the new name of corporations, began once more to flourish. The bishops and priests, who were admitted and accepted as patrons and honorary members, 
soon assumed the control of them, and they set to work the architects and builders in the construction of churches, cathedrals, monasteries, and other religious edifices. What Whittington has said of Gaul may, with equal truth, be applied to the other parts of Europe. The people were degraded, the barons only half-civilized, commerce had not yet elevated the lower classes, and the arts had made but little progress among the higher ones. Therefore, it was chiefly through the church that the art of building was revived, a practice which, under the barbaric influences, had previously gone on to its decay. All the writers who have made this subject a study agree in asserting the great influence of the clergy in the practice and teaching of medieval architecture. Ferguson goes so far as to say that in the 13th century, the masons, though skilled in hewing and setting stones and acquainted with all the inventions and improvements in their art, never exercised their calling except under the guidance of some superior person who was a bishop, an abbot, or an accomplished layman. This too broad assertion, however, not entirely in accord with the fact that in France alone in the 13th century, to say nothing of England, Italy, or Germany, there were many architects who, though neither bishops nor abbots, both designed and built great works, such, for instance, as Hughes Libergier, the builder of the Cathedral of Reims, Robert de Lussarche, the builder of the Cathedral of Amiens, and Hugh de Montreux, who says Whittington was an artist equally remarkable for his scientific knowledge and the boldness of his conceptions. He accompanied St. Louis in his expeditions to the Holy Land, where he fortified the city and the port of Joppa, and on his return to France was employed by the king in the constructing of several religious buildings. The important place occupied by the church in the revival of architecture cannot, however, be too highly estimated. Though it would be an error to suppose that there were no laymen who were architects, it must be confessed that the most eminent officials of the church made architecture a study, and that in the construction of religious houses, the bishops or abbots designed the plans and the monks executed them. Even if the architect and masons were laymen, the house was almost always built under the superintendence and direction of some churchman of high rank. The view taken by this author is the one that is historically the most likely to be true. Whittington's language is worthy of quotation. In those ages of barbarism, when the lay portion of the community was fully employed in warfare and devastation, when churches and convents were the only retreats of peace and security, they also became the chief foci or centers of productive industry. Convents have long been celebrated as the chief asylums of letters in those ages. They also deserve to be remembered as the sole conservators of art, not only painting, sculpture, enameling, engraving, and portraiture, but even architecture, which was chiefly exercised in them. And the more as the edifices which showed any elegance of skill were only required for sacred purposes, in every region where a religious order wanted a new church or convent, it was an ordinary thing for the superior, the prior, the abbot, nay, the bishop, to give the design and for the monks to fulfill, under his direction, every department of the execution from the meanest to the highest. We hold it to be important that the reader should be thoroughly impressed with the position and the services of the clergy in the architecture of the Middle Ages. These facts account for the character of the institution of stonemasons, who succeeded the artists of official rank as churchmen, and who, though released from the direct service of the church, still remained under its influence. This is well shown in the symbols used by them in the decoration of the buildings which they erected, most of which belong to a Christian type of design, 
and the characters and constitutions by which they were governed, which teach religious faith and respect for the church, and finally in the handing on of a religious character to the speculative Freemasons who succeeded them, and of whose institution it has been said that if Freemasonry be not a universal religion, it becomes a servant to every other worthy system of faith. The only difference between the Freemasonry of today and that of the 10th or the 11th century in respect to the question of religion is that the former is worldwide of application and universal in its creed, whose only unalterable points are the existence of God and the immortality of the soul, while the latter was strictly Christian according to the orthodox form in its belief and practice. Notwithstanding the change from intolerance to liberality of sentiment which the progress of the age has introduced, it must never be forgotten that whatever there is of a religious or sacred character in the constitution or the ritual of the Freemasonry of today must be traced to the influences of the church over the operatives of the Middle Ages. But it is necessary to resume the thread of our history. At the beginning of the 11th century, Lombardy was an active center of civilization in Europe. It had prospered under the free institutions of its kings for two centuries, and on the uprooting of the royal line, the people shared in the benefits of the far-sighted policy and prudent government of their conqueror, Charlemagne. The workmen of Lombardy still maintained the relics of these ancient fraternities which had carried under the Roman control the principles and practices of the colleges of artificers into the conquered provinces of the empire. The policy of the kings had led them to give various craftsmen the sole privilege of exercising their own trades, and under the form of guilds or corporations to establish bodies which were governed by peculiar laws, and which were sought to be kept alive by the introduction into them of youths who were to be instructed by the masters, so that having served a due period of preparation and initiation as apprentices, they might become associates and workers in the guild or corporation. This was the way that, at that time, all trades and professions were organized, insofar as respects the union in a corporation endowed with peculiar privileges, the Freemasons did not differ essentially from the shoemakers, the hatters, or the tailors. Each body had its masters, its wardens, or similar officers, and each was governed by its own laws and was recruited from a body of apprentices. There was, however, one very important difference between the Freemasons and the other crafts. This peculiarity was the cause of singular results. This difference between the organizations arose from the nature of the work which was to be done and which affected the relations of the craftsmen to each other. The trade of the tailor or the shoemaker was local. The custom was obtained from the place in which he lived. The members of the corporation or guild all knew each other. They lived in the same town or city, and their apprentices, having accomplished their time of service and gone forth to see the world, almost always returned home and settled among their relatives and their friends. Hence, the work done by these trades was work that came to them. Their work was brought to them by the neighbors who lived around them. Every shoemaker in the city knew every other shoemaker in the same place. Every tailor was familiar with the face, the life, and the character of every other tailor. While such intimacy existed, there was no necessity for the establishment of any peculiar guards against impostors, for the trades of tailoring and shoemaking were seldom troubled with the presence of strangers. But it was not so with the Freemasons. Theirs was not a local craft. Work did not come to them, but they had to go to the work. Whenever a building was to be erected which required a force of workmen beyond the number who resided usually near the place, Freemasons had to be sent for from the nearby towns and districts, and sometimes from even much greater distances.
There was therefore a great necessity for caution in the admission of these strangers among the workmen, lest some should intrude who were not legally entitled to employment by having acquired a knowledge of the craft in the regular way, that is, by having passed through the period of an apprenticeship to some lawful master. Hence there arose the necessity of adopting secret modes of recognition. By such means a stranger might be known on his first appearance as a member of the craft, as a true craftsman, or be at once detected as an impostor. Ferguson has adopted this view on the origin of signs and passwords among the Freemasons. As a scholar on much research, but who, not being a member of the modern fraternity, obtains his opinions and deductions from history unconnected with any guild traditions, his remarks are interesting. He says, At a time when writing was almost wholly unknown among the laity, and not one mason in a thousand could either read or write, it is evidently essential that some expedient should be hit upon by which a mason traveling to his work might claim assistance and hospitality of his brother masons on the road, by means of which he might take his rank at once on reaching the lodge without going through tedious examinations or giving practical proofs of his skill. For this purpose, a set of secret signs was invented which enabled all masons to recognize one another as such, and by which also each man could make known his grade to those of similar rank without further trouble than a manual sign or the utterance of some recognized password. Other trades had something of the same sort, but it was never necessary for them to carry it either to the same extent nor to the practice it so often as masons, they being for the most part resident in the same place and knowing each other personally. Freemasonry was therefore in the following condition at the beginning of the 11th century, so far as respects the kingdom of Lombardy, to which the honor has been universally assigned of being the center from which the Masonic corporations spread abroad into the rest of Europe. Lombardy was, as has already been shown, the active center whence the arts and sciences were sent out into other countries. Architecture is one of the most useful of the arts and one of an almost sacred character from its service in the construction of religious edifices, took a leading place among the crafts that were cultivated in that country. Schools of architecture and corporations of architects, principally officials of the church, were formed. These, passing into other countries and spreading abroad the principles of their science which they had acquired in the schools at home, have been hence known in history by the title of Traveling Masons of the Middle Ages. Among these schools of craftsmen, one of the most distinguished was that of Como. And with that, we're going to go ahead and call it an episode because this is barely putting us halfway through this chapter. And so we'll pick it up next week with the school in Como. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.